The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thanks and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. What was the first battle of the Civil War? If we don't count the one-sided bombardment at Fort Sumter where no one was killed in action, everyone listening to the show knows the answer is the first big land battle of the war was fought at Bull Run. But there were a number of smaller battles before First Manassas. Yet those battles didn't seem small at the time, especially to those who were involved. We'll take a closer look at one of those early conflicts, the Battle of Big Bethel, with J. Michael Cobb co-author of the book aptly titled Battle of Big Bethel, Crucial Clash in Early Civil War Virginia. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you tonight as usual from Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters on the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University here in Greenville, North Carolina. It's a chilly evening. Uh, Wednesday in uh, in what month it's it's February still February of 2014 it has seemed like the longest February snow all over the country and even some here in Greenville uh, but we're almost at the end of the month it is a 
uh, uh, said snow everywhere, including in the Midwest, where uh, my mother is continuing to recover from her broken arm and doing well. Looking forward to seeing her next week when it's spring break uh, coming up shortly here at ECU. And uh, also wanted to say hello to uh, Scott Bushnell in northeastern Indiana, uh, an old friend and colleague from Lincoln Museum days. Uh, Scott, I hope you are doing well and look forward to being in touch with you soon. Uh, here in Greenville, things are, are up for grabs uh, at, at East, ECU. The uh, uh, Dean of Arts and Sciences is uh, an open position at the moment. Uh, we are looking, we are searching for a new dean. We are also looking for, or about to start looking for a new provost or chief academic officer, um, as our current one is stepping down. So this place could look very different a year from now with new academic leadership at various levels. Uh, could be good, could be bad. We'll have to wait and see, but uh, lots of things uh, moving moving us in various unpredictable directions at this moment. Um here in the history department, our uh, seven-year review is due to take place tomorrow. We haven't had a seven-year review for about 14 years, I don't think. So it'll be quite interesting to see how it goes. Um, but this will uh, we'll have some external reviewers, some other universities coming to look at us, reading our report and telling us what we're doing right and wrong. I'm hoping they will say uh, we should do more episodes of Civil War talk radio, but I don't think that's likely. Uh, but perhaps they'll think it's a good thing that we produce this here at East Carolina University. But the university doesn't do it. Forgot the legal disclaimer, not speaking for the university. My guest will not uh, speak or otherwise communicate on behalf of his institution. Uh, we're all on our own hook, as always. And that will be true of future guests as well. We have some very interesting shows coming up in the next month or so. Uh, next week, Richard Slotkin, author of The Long Road to Antietam, How the Civil War Became a Revolution. And uh, Richard Slotkin has written uh, a number of, of classic American historical works, uh, including Gunfighter Nation. Uh, looking forward very much to talking with him. The following week, that's the 12th of March, that will be spring break. I'll be up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, enjoying the uh, weather there and uh, taking my daughter to look at the University of Michigan. As was mentioned last week, uh, listeners are welcome to send uh, donations of five to $10,000 or more to, through the PayPal button on our Impediments of War website www.impedimentsofwar.org in order to help finance uh, Maria's education. Uh, uh, failing that, if if five to ten large is beyond your means, and so far I'm sorry to say no one has come through, uh, I did find another box of copies of Did Lincoln Own Slaves and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, so if you were to send a modest $30 this way, I can send you a copy of Did Lincoln Own Slaves with an inscription if you want one. Uh, it's a limited time offer because there's just the one box of crisp first editions left. Uh, so if you're listening to this anytime in the spring of 2014, there's probably still one left. Uh, uh, 
send me an email at uh, my last name and first initial, Prokopovich G at ecu.edu, and we'll work out uh, a way to do that. Or better still, just hit the PayPal donation button. That automatically gives me your address, and I can send you a book. So that's coming up. Uh, Richard Slotkin next week, spring break after that. On the 19th, Jared Peatman, uh, who was a weather cancellation earlier this, this grim winter, will be back to talk about the Gettysburg Address. March 26th, uh, Catherine Ray Amy has a book called Abraham Lincoln in the Kitchen, a culinary view of Lincoln's life and times. It's different from anything we've had on the show before, I will say that. Uh, the following week, Robert Girardi has a book called The Civil War Generals, Comrades, Peers, Rivals in Their Own Words, where we get to hear what the generals thought of one another, and it's a uh, catty uh, festival of opinions uh, that I know you will enjoy. Following that, uh, we go into, that's April 2nd, April 9th, Corey Recco, uh, a book on a, a topic I would guess few of us are familiar with called A Spy for the Union. It's about the life and execution of Timothy Webster. Then we've got Robert Connor, biography of General Gordon Granger, the savior of Chickamauga. And on March, no, April 23rd, James B. Conroy, a book about the Hampton Roads Peace Conference of 1865, our one common country, Abraham Lincoln and the Hampton Roads Peace Conference. And finally, to round out the month of April, it'll be springtime, time to look at the blooming uh, flowers in many parts of the country, and appropriately, uh, Kate uh, Meyer, Catherine Meyer, will talk with us about nature's civil war, common soldiers and the environment in 1862 Virginia. So lots of new approaches, obscure and interesting topics that we haven't touched on before, all coming up soon. Uh, Go to impedimentsofwar.org to keep track of it, and you'll find out who's going to be on next. Tonight, it's J. Michael Cobb, uh, one of the co-authors of a book on a battle we have not yet discussed in detail on this show in the last 10 years, the Battle of Big Bethel in 1861. Uh, Mr. Cobb, are you there? Jerry, it's a cold night here in Hampton, Virginia as well. I I believe that. But it certainly was quite warm in the spring of 1861 here on the Lower Peninsula near Fort Monroe, where the Battle of Big Bethel unfolded. Well, that's what we're, we're going to hear about. Um, let me, just because you and I have, have talked a little bit on the phone and, and yeah. emailed a few times, but we haven't yeah. had a chance to, to meet. Um, you, uh, you work at the Hampton Museum, is that correct? I am the curator, Jerry, of the Hampton uh, History Museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, with uh, 30 years, I've been here for 30 years. Wow. Curator of Fort Wool, which is a companion fort to Fort Monroe, which is my true love. And uh, so I've had the chance to work, as you have, in history for most mm-hmm. of my life, and what a gift that is. It is it is wonderful to be able to do something that, that you enjoy. Had, had you always wanted to go into history? From Do you remember oh, when you got, got interested? I was, before I started school, I wanted to be an archaeologist. I used to um, uh, make little clay objects and bury them and dig them up. And (laughs) (laughs) on the bookshelves, I would set uh, toys as as if they were in a museum exhibit. So 
but whatever reason, um, it was in me. Um, uh, my father was a contractor, and uh, he would give me a hammer and a saw and hope. But I, uh, I was a museum person, and I was very lucky to, to find myself in this position and, and had the chances to, um, to do the things that I've had to, to do and have a chance to talk to interesting um, uh, people like yourself. Well, that, that I tell my public history students uh, about the history bug, that if, if you have it, you're going to go into the field one way or another, uh, uh, or you're going to try your best to find your way into it, even if your parents give you a, a hammer and, and saw and try to get you to do something productive or send you to law school or whatever they might do. It's not going to take. You're, you're going to do history if that's what you need to do. And, uh, a lot it sounds of like you and I did the same. Oh, you go never ahead. know. True. Uh, luck is a huge uh, uh, part. Networking, who who you meet, uh, what openings come up at the right time. It, it's you know, a, lot, a lot of fortuitous things have to happen. Um, before asking you about the battle, just a quick word about your co-authors, uh, Edward B. Hicks and Wythe Holt. Uh, tell us a little bit about them. Well, Ed Hicks um, uh, had a career in the local newspaper for over 32 years. And he came to us about six or seven years ago as an assistant curator. And Ed is now employed here, and he helped put the Hampton History Museum together. He helped. Uh, we opened it in 2003, and he was instrumental. He's a great researcher and a great historian. And um, Wiff Holt was a professor of law at the University yeah. of Alabama. And as a nat- he's retired a number of years ago. He spent 40-some-odd years there. And he is a nationally recognized authority on American legal history and is a descendant of George Wythe, one of our founding fathers. Uh, who is, is from the area that we're, we're looking at here, where the battle took place. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Uh, Wythe, Wythe uh, grew up here. I grew up uh, close by, and as did Ed Hicks. We're all native so, of Hampton Roads. Mm-hmm. So for, for people growing up there, the, the the interest in a battle like Big Bethel would be be obvious, um, but the first question that I have to ask anyone outside the area might ask is, why would I want to read a book on this small insignificant uh, skirmish? Uh, why not uh, dig right into Bull Run? That's a good question, and there's no reason not to read about Bull Run. Uh, uh, certainly, there has been great books coming out about that battle, and there's going to be more in the future. But uh, we were looking, looking at Bethel, and of course we're close to it, a uh, number of miles away. The battlefield uh, is there, and I grew up with it as a young boy. My mother and father took me to the great battlefields of Wilderness and Spotsylvania and Chancellorsville and such. So I always tramped the battlefields, including Bethel. So it was all part of our, our kin, our, 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 our environment. But we thought it would be a good chance to take a look at it, because if you look in the books, even the great, great histories of the war, Bethel is often not mentioned. And as you, in your introduction, you talked about Fort Sumter, and certainly the war begins with that. And then you go uh, to uh, First Bull Run, First Manassas, and the time in between is sort of left out. And so we thought, why not look at this battle of Big Bethel? But everybody would say, well, there's not enough material there to do it. It's just a small battle. The books, the publications that did mention uh, Big Bethel, Jerry, would only say 
It was a small affair. And if it had happened a few weeks later, it would not have been noticed. And also uh, often said it was a battle of first. The first uh, Confederate soldier killed in the Civil War, the first West Point graduate killed during the Civil War, and so on and so forth. Because obviously being first, everything that happened was a first. Mm-hmm. So the Battle of Big Bethel was interpreted as a small engagement with a lot of first and nothing else. And we thought there must be more to it than that. And so we looked at it with the lens of a new social history, looking at it from the bottom up, looking at the, social, the politics, the social history, the military history, and weaving it together and putting the Battle of Big Bethel, Jerry, in context with the first days of the Civil War. And what came out of that was a very full and dimensional look at this crucial battle in early Civil War Virginia, the Battle of Big Bethel. Well, it's, it is certainly one of the strong points of this book, as I read it, was the, 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 that we know it's an early skirmish and there's going to be much larger battles to follow. So, yeah. But the people who are there don't know what a big or a small battle looks like. They, they've, I mean, you open with a brief vignette of the Mexican War, but for the most part, these people have never shot at another human being, uh, have never been shot at, uh, have never seen anyone shooting or, or being shot at. This is a, a really unique uh, experience for all of them. That's a major theme um, uh, 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 of the book because in those weeks between uh, Fort Sumter and Bull Run, the Battle of Big Bethel was a tremendous uh, engagement because few people had anything to compare with the veterans of the Mexican War, some of which were on the battlefield that day, uh, Daniel Harvey Hill, John B. Magruder, and a few others. But, uh, you know, the battle was compared uh, in religious uh, uh, sermons on Sunday, Sunday morning in the newspapers as Bunker Hill, it was compared to the great engagements that Napoleon waged in Europe. And so it was way out of proportion of, of the reality. But to those who fought it, and to those who experienced it even distantly, it seemed tremendous. And Bull Run had not happened. And when it did occur, when First Manassas did unfold, then things were put more in perspective. And as we say in the first paragraph of the book, each engagement that would occur... Year after year, the battle would intensify greatly, and the war well, would intensify greatly. Mm-hmm. And, and leave, leave Big Bethel looking smaller in retrospect, but not at the time. We're going to take a short break now and come back and look at the battle itself and how the soldiers uh, prepared, uh, what, what led up to it, and, and uh, many things surrounding it. We'll do this in, in just a moment. We're talking today with Mike Cobb. It's one of the co-authors of Battle of Big Bethel, Crucial Clash in Early Civil War, Virginia. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com 
Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Today, I'm talking with Mike Cobb, author, co-author of Battle of Big Bethel. We've been talking a little bit about how this uh, seemingly small skirmish in the, the spring of 1861 didn't seem so small at the time, certainly not to those who participated, uh, Mike, could you set the, the geographical stage? Uh, I, I'm guessing most listeners to this show know where the Virginia Peninsula is, scene of the Peninsula Campaign uh, of 1862, but uh, and, and Fort Monroe down there at the, the tip of it. Uh, but what's what's the geography like in the neighborhood of Fort Monroe and where the battle took place? Well, it's, it's certainly flat and surrounded by water, and Fort Monroe is the is the center of, of this developing campaign. The peninsula, um, some of the towns that are associated with it are Williamsburg and Yorktown, uh, made famous during the Colonial and Revolutionary War period. In fact, the Confederates are building fortifications, uh, John B. Magruder in command, around the old British fortifications surrounding the Colonial Yorktown. The purpose of these fortifications, Jerry, was to block an expected federal advance up the peninsula and towards the Confederate capital of Richmond. On the Union part, around Fort Monroe, under the command of uh, uh, Benjamin F. Butler, very controversial uh, officer for sure, uh, Lincoln, uh, President Lincoln, and Secretary of Terry of War, Winfield Scott, recognized Fort Monroe as a, the key to the Chesapeake. Uh, they reinforce it. Uh, they send uh, uh, munitions there for a buildup 
for a drive against Richmond. They soon establish a, uh, another post nearby on the other end of the Virginia Peninsula called Camp Butler. And the idea is to uh, defend Fort Monroe at all costs, but certainly also to eventually advance upon uh, uh, the Confederate capital. So, although Fort Monroe then is in Virginia, it stays in Union hands from the start of the war uh, uh, all the way through. So, it's really the first place, other than maybe the outskirts of, of D.C., where you've got Union and Confederate troops in proximity right from the start of the war. And you do, uh, in, the, in the various um, uh, forays by both sides into the land in between, there are skirmishes, and also around uh, 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 this, this church, uh, Big Bethel Church, uh, out, uh, out in the countryside. Uh, forces on both sides use it for this quarter in, and, and there's some of them write, the federal, federals write slogans on the walls, uh, deaf to traitors and such. So you have this contact going back and forth, and eventually uh, General Magruder at, at your town uh, sends a detachment from the main fortifications encircling your town to build a readout around Big Bethel Church, a number of miles um, from your town and uh, fairly close to Fort Monroe. The Federals, uh, through their scouts, an African-American named George Scott uh, discovers and watches the uh, construction of, of, these, of this fortification. And General Butler is not going to have a, a, a Confederate outpost near Fort Monroe. It's against his instructions, in fact, from Winfield Scott not to let the Confederates get too close to Fort Monroe. So he and his aide, uh, Theodore Winthrop, uh, devise a plan to attack uh, Big Bethel and General Magruder's fortifications there. You mentioned uh, an African-American scout uh, or spy who, who discovers and reports on what the Confederates are doing. Uh, one of the other phenomena that takes place in the peninsula here where you have the Union Army in, in southern territory, enslaved territory, is the, the first encounters between federal troops and enslaved Virginians. How does that go? Well, it, it's, it's one of the first steps towards the Emancipation Proclamation takes place here. Uh, three um, uh, black enslaved men are working on the, on the Confederate fortifications at Sills Point, which is where Norfolk is today. And they decide to make, they make a daring decision and commandeer a small boat across Hanson Roads Harbor uh, they appear at Fort Monroe, and they very uh, courageously ask to see General Butler. Uh, Butler interviews them right before the Battle of Big Bethel, in fact, and declares them contraband, meaning that they could be used against him uh, in the war. And they're not free, as you know, Jerry, but they certainly are not in the same condition they were the day before. And it's a really bold move, and this decoration called Butler's the Fugitive Slave Law causes a lot of trouble in Washington. Uh, Lincoln is uh, not ready to make this move, and so there's a lot of controversy about it, but it's made, and other generals, especially on the Sea Islands of South Carolina and other places, follow, and pretty soon, seven or 8,000 so-called contraband uh, folk make their way to the Lower Peninsula, to Fort Monroe, and establish settlements there, and they called Fort Monroe Freedom's Fort. So, 
now Butler, I mean, the irony is that Butler is not uh, not only not an abolitionist, he's not even a Republican. No, he su- he supported Jefferson Davis. He was a, he was a populist. He, as a young lawyer, he supported mill uh, 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 girls working in the mills, and so he had that bent. But he was no, he was a Democrat, and he was um, uh, he became uh, as time went by, as we know, he became a Republican. He even became a radical Republican during Reconstruction. But it was a process, and uh, he certainly, I think, much of what happened, Jerry was. Uh, the events that unfolded, he reacted to them. So he he was faced with this question, and and it made this this decision with these huge, long, long-standing ramifications. Uh, yes. Now he was also, as you said, he was also not about to let the Confederates establish this fortification around the the, the church, the Big Bethel Church. Uh, how how big is the fortification? Let's talk about numbers for a minute. What? How big is the fortification? How many men uh, does Magruder have there? Uh, how many men does, does Butler have at his call? Well, uh, the Confederates uh, have uh, about twelve, uh, about twelve hundred men or so. Uh, the fortification is really a large, a large readout, and it had several um, uh, other uh, smaller fortifications in advance of this main readout built around the church. The Federals had over 4,000 troops from New York, uh, Vermont, uh, and uh, other, others, other states. But uh, the idea was drawn up by Butler and by Winthrop. Now, neither one of them were real trained soldiers, especially Winthrop. He was an author. He was, he was a dyed-in-the-wool abolitionist. And he, um, he and Butler devised a plan to make a two-pronged attack, uh, one, one column leaving from Fort Monroe on the Lower Peninsula, and the other column leaving from Camp Butler, also on the other side of the Lower Peninsula, and converging uh, at uh, uh, Big Bethel and hoping to capture uh, the Confederates there. It was very daring, making two troop movements, and it was at night, Jerry. And mm. that's difficult to do today. As, as they're planning this, just going back a, a week, a month or so before the battle, Again, I, I found fascinating the idea of not knowing what to do of of the soldiers in their interactions with the civilians uh, on both sides or interactions with each other. By 1862, certainly, codes of behavior have, de- have developed. You, you typically don't shoot at pickets, for example. Uh, at that point in the war, by Petersburg, that'll be different. You shoot at anything you can see. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the, the systems of behavior are arrived at, but in 1861, it's a it's a huge leap to to again raise your rifle and aim it at a fellow human being, uh, a fellow American. At that, uh, no one. How did? I mean, how does it work? Do, do they they start shooting at each other? Do they capture one another? Do, do they? Uh, you mentioned that they, they the Union troops uh, scrawl uh, slogans inside the, the Bethel Church, and the the Confederates regard this as Yankee vandalism, and the Yankees regard it as telling the Confederates what for. Uh, but that's like almost schoolboy stuff, and they're about to start killing each other. It it, it is and. You know, one of the things that we found at, at Big Bethel, Jerry, was much of the animosity, much of what would happen 
later in the war was already there in 61. I mean, mm-hmm. in, in developing, but it was still, mm-hmm. it was still there. You, the Confederates were, were, were diehard, um, rebels and, and the Federals were, would fight to the last band to preserve, preserve the Union. But what happens is, is the fire actually begins before the battle. And what we would today call friendly fire is these two columns move through the darkness towards Bethel. There's a collision among New York troops, and uh, they fire upon one another, and a large number of men fall before the battle begins. And they decide um, the command uh, on the ground was uh, 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 Colonel Ebenezer Pierce, and he and his uh, aides uh, and fellow officers, including Judson Kilpatrick and Governor Warren, which had become famous uh, later in this war, mm-hmm. decided to go on. And um, then they approached the main uh, Confederate work, and the battle begins on uh, June 10, 1861, around 9.15 in the morning. And as you suggest, uh, what's going to happen uh, when the firing starts? Well, these men write about this, Jerry. They write about it before, and they write about it after. And they're scared. I mean, they have a fear. The fear is there. They also, they, also have a, they also are dedicated to behaving as a soldier should. But, of course, no one knows what's going to happen when the firing starts. So there's that doubt. There's that trembling. But once it opens, once the shells fly, it's, it's, people find out very quickly. And many, many Yankee boys uh, hit the dirt. And many Confederates uh, huddled behind their fortifications. But that, that fear, uh, the violence that would uh, ensue, and a micro, was a microcosm of what would happen during the rest of the war. The, I mean, one of your, your chapter titles is, damn them, they're firing bullets. Uh, <laughs> this is really happening. Yeah, uh, that's very good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was like, you know, you, you, they, they expected to, what would happen, but when it actually happens, yeah, damn it, they're actually firing bullets at us. And somebody reality, could get hurt. <laughs> somebody could get hurt. I, I recently heard um, a quote by, by Lincoln, Doris Kearns Goodwin's uh, a great book. Um, and Lincoln himself said, well, I don't know. I can't shoot a boy who deserted. I, I don't know what I would do myself if I was on that battlefield and those shells were, were flying. You know, what would I do? I, I probably would run away. And the reality is, people did. And um, so that's the reality of war. You know, the, the glory of it is, is usually myth. And the reality is, is death and great suffering. And you really see this, Jerry, uh, after the battle, after the firing stops, and the Confederates walk the field, and they see mutilated bodies, and they see the damage that their fire did, and they, they stop. And they look, and it really impacts them uh, what what has happened. And certainly, the Federals who were on the receiving end of this, as they make their way back to Fort Monroe and to Camp Butler, and the days following, they they um, they realize the horror of it too. And as you know, the first Confederate soldier, and that's certainly arguable, who died there is Henry Lawson Wyatt, and seven hundred and fifty thousand or so men would follow him to his grave in the American Civil War. So certainly the horror of the war was there in the beginning. 
So when you mentioned the union has a two-pronged attack, uh, they already run afoul of uh, uh, friendly fire trying to move, maneuver at night. Uh, how, how successful is the attack? Uh, well, it was several attacks, and um, uh, the 5th New York Zouave, Duryea Zouave, uh, lead the way. They were brave uh, men who left New York City with um, uh, the intention of... Uh, defeating the rebellion, and um, so the first attack goes straight up the, uh, the road, the main road between Yorktown and, and, and Hampton, and towards the Confederate workout. Uh, uh, um, and as they approach, the Confederate, Confederates opened fire, and the first cannonball uh, was fired and went, went uh, zinging through the ranks, then the, then the musket fire. One of the phenomena of Bethel is the Confederates took great care in masking the battery. They put uh, brush and, and tree limbs and such in front of the fortification, so it was difficult for the Federals to see it. And so what, they, what happened is they see an eruption of fire, a flame coming from the horizon, and long after the battle, uh, the Federals picked up this idea that the rebels had a masked battery, and they were fighting from behind a concealed position, which was not very manly. And the great offshoot of that, you mentioned Petersburg. Well, as you know, by 64, at Cold Harbor, Petersburg, a shovel was a soldier's friend. But in the early part of the war, at Big Bethel, it was not. And the Southern soldiers saw this as work of enslaved men. They weren't going to do it. They didn't want to do it, but they were made to by the veterans, G.H. Hill and John B. Magruder. And these fortifications that they erected uh, was, the, was, was the result of only one casualty, one killed, seven wounded. And after the battle, they gladly shook hands with their shovels because it had saved their lives. So they, they came to realize, right, what seemed like... Uh, to their eyes, uh, slaves' work or, or an unmanly way to fight uh, would change over time. But the Federals went into the battle with the same kind of illusions that uh, the way to fight a battle was, was in the open, marching bravely toward the enemy. Exactly, and, and they did, and they, they were great. They had great courage. I mean, a, a man who proved his courage later, Justin Kilpatrick, talks about hugging the, the earth very, very closely, and uh, becoming very friendly with it, and uh, you know, they were brave. They certainly were, and it was the fire was just too heavy for them to proceed. And and there and the several uh, forays towards the Confederates, and they had great shame because of this, Jerry. Great shame. In fact, one of my favorite chapter titles um, is derived from uh, one of the Union soldiers when he got back to Fort Monroe that night. He sat down and wrote home about what happened. And he simply says, I would rather drag a ball in chain than tell you what happened at Bethel. Wow. Well, that's a good time for us to break because we're going to find out more about what happened at Bethel and how the Union was defeated. Uh, When we return from a short break, we're talking today with Michael Cobb, author of Battle of Big Bethel, Crucial Clash in Early Civil War, Virginia. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. 
VoiceAmerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Mike Cobb, co-author of Battle of Big Bethel. We've been talking about this skirmish early in the war, before the first Battle of Bull Run in 1861, and uh, how it, it is forgotten largely today but at the time made a huge impact when no one had ever experienced uh, a phenomenon like this of uh, Americans fighting one another openly uh, in this fashion uh, you'd have to go back to the revolution to find patriots and Tories doing this kind of thing uh, the battle itself is a union defeat you were Mike you were describing how there there are several union charges and they're they're driven back the Confederates hold on to their position even though they're greatly outnumbered uh, and as as your chapter title uh, drag a ball and chain indicates it was uh, there's something that, that the Union soldiers didn't want to talk about it they they, they felt terrible about it um, what was the reaction to the battle on both sides well uh, that's a very important point um, in the South, the fact that only one man was killed uh, reinforced the idea of the Southern people that one Southerner could whip ten Yankees and that the North was a section of shopkeepers and wage earners and, and people who would not fight, while on the other hand, Southerners were bred to the horse and the gun and outdoors and were great warriors. And uh, so this this one lopsided battle reinforced that. Also, the fact that the light losses on their side suggested, as they were convinced, that God was on their side. So what it did, Jerry, uh, right in the beginning of the war, it, 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 it strengthened uh, the Southern uh, resolve to fight, and it also um, 
gave a, a false uh, 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 picture of of the northern uh, fighting man. And uh, the famous Mary Chestnut um, would write that this, uh, people in Richmond were jubilant over this, but Jefferson Davis, uh, at one of these parties that were uh, 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 in Richmond, uh, told her that uh, the North will fight, and we're, we're, we're foolish to think that they will not. And there were some voices in the South that, that, that realized that. On the northern side, it was it was awful. You know, we found a great document um, um, that uh, uh, very seldom that you'll find when doing something like this. Uh, 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 Stanton, he was before he was Secretary of War, but he was in Secretary of War's office, and he was writing a letter to former President James Buchanan. And uh, apparently, the first reports of the battle, which often happened, were exaggerated, and the reports were that thousands of men had, fell, had fallen at Big Bethel. And it was a great defeat for the North. And just before he finished the letter, General Butler had sent his, his brother to Washington. Now, that was partly, Jerry, to make sure that we, they got a correct spin on this battle, that, that uh, Butler was not uh, uh, placed in fault in this. But Butler's brother did give them the correct numbers of, of uh dead and wounded, which was, was better than the first reports, but uh, the press picked up on it. They call it the Battle of Great Be- uh, Bethel, and of course, on the northern side, what happens is a search for um, uh, uh, the people responsible, and uh, many of the officers there offer to resign. Uh, much uh, of the finger-pointing uh, goes to General Butler. Butler is very adept at defending himself. Uh, and what happens is Ebenezer Pierce, who actually led the troops, becomes the person who gets most of the blame. And, and a large, large part of it is correct. I mean, he was, he was not on the front lines. He certainly made mistakes. Um, but there was um, the main thing to know about this is that rather than um, withdraw and, and uh, feel despondent, well, there was despondency, but what happens in the North is a very growing and unshakable sense of duty and, and, and preservation of the Union. What happens at the defeat of Bethel is the Union resolve only, only is strengthened. And Father would later write uh, 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 one of his fellow officers and and advise him, don't you know? Don't be concerned about your reversal at Bethel. We we suffered that. And we learned from it. We have to learn from our mistakes and do better. So what happens is uh, you have a, a, a re- northern resolve is uh, even more steadfast, and southern uh, hope for victory is buoyant and with great enthusiasm and confident of another f- victory, which they find at first bull run. It, it's remarkable how much uh, what you described reflects the the, the impression of what happened after first bull run as well, southern overconfidence, northern resolve. But that comes into clearer focus now after learning more about what happened at Big Bethel, that bull run is not an aberration to, to southerners. It's a pattern. They, they've done it once, and now they've done it on a bigger scale, and they continue to think it'll keep happening. And for northerners, uh, there must have been additional trepidation after bull run because their troops have not done well. Uh, consecutively, so the, the battle does uh, take on greater importance when we see it in the context of its times, as opposed to uh, 
seeing it at, from after the war, as, as we obviously have to see it. Yes, Bull Run was certainly on, on a much larger stage right outside of Washington and, and did all the things that you say. And when we look at Bethel and we look at its importance um, in comparison to Bull Run, uh, one, of the, one of the factors is not only was, you know, during this brief period, was it the only uh, uh, battle to, 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 to compare, but also because it was a first. Now, if you think any, any, anything in a, in a person's life that was first has, grow, has lasting importance, and the, even towards the end of the war and, and the generation after the war, Bethel had a, a, an importance way out of a portion of, of, of the actual uh, uh, battle because it was first. And, of course, the 1st North Carolina uh, Regiment, uh, its motto was first at Bethel. And even right up to Appomattox, Bethel was still very important to them. And I think partially because when you look, when the Southerners look back at the things that they, they uh, reveled in, uh, Bethel was one. It was an early victory, and they remembered the intensity of the celebration, just like the Battle of Hampton Roads between the Monitor and Virginia. Uh, that, too, was looked back at very fondly with great pride. So there were certain things that, over the years, uh, didn't diminish, but magnified among those who uh, uh, were part of that uh, 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 population during the war. The book has really wonderful maps. I want to put in a word about that. They, yeah. uh, they're they're on a, a, a very small scale. Looks like an inch to about 150 yards. So you can really get a sense of, of what's happening. You, did you have those done for this book? Uh, Hal Jefferson uh, did the maps uh, for Savage Beatty. Uh, uh, he's done a lot of their, a lot of their books, and we we had him do ours, and, and it was a great job. Whenever you do a book, it's certainly a collaboration of a lot of uh, a lot of people and, and archives, uh, uh, museums, and, and uh, uh, map makers, and many others. And uh, the the maps are we're very proud of them. Well, they're 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 very effective, uh, I would say, and they really bring out the clarity of what happened. I, I noticed reading the acknowledgments, which I uh, always make a point to do, uh, you did some research uh, here in Greenville at Joyner Library uh, uh, and, and found some materials at least. And you mentioned uh, Arthur Carlson, one of our graduates who works in Joyner Library. So it's always good to see a, a shout out for the home team here at ECU. And we appreciate uh, it. Uh, but this, uh, as you say, it's a, a team effort. You've got two co-authors as well as a map maker, publisher, everyone else, all the things that go into it. Getting back to the battle, um, on the ground, what happens afterwards? You mentioned the South doesn't have a large number of casualties to deal with. Uh, what about northern casualties? Were there prisoners taken? What, what did people do afterwards? Well, the the uh, Confe- Confederates uh, withdrew. They went <laughs> after the battle. They they withdrew back to Yorktown, and uh, with their uh, 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 casualties, the North, on the other hand, they had quite a jaunt uh, uh, back uh, to Fort Monroe and, and Camp Butler, and the wounded were treated in makeshift hospitals, mainly at the old Hygieia Hospital. And Dorothea Dix, the great humanitarian, actually comes down that day. And with some nurses uh, to to care for them, and that's the beginning of her career 
her Civil War career on the on the battlefield. But one interesting note, one of the great things that we encountered uh, with um, Ed and I is we found a great document at Carlisle Barracks, and um, it's one of those things that that really tell the story. Theodore Winthrop, as you remember, was a staunch abolitionist, and he was the aide to General Butler. Well, his diary uh, was found on his body. He was shot and killed, actually very, very bravely fighting uh, for the North. He was standing on his tree stump uh, trying to lead the troops, and he was shot dead. And that diary uh, falls into the hands of Daniel Harvey Hill. And Hill is uh, uh, a certainly... uh, uh, a dyed-in-the-wool secessionist. And so that evening, Hill had Winthrop's diary in his hand, and he writes to his, uh, he reads the diary, and one of the passages in the diary will read, uh, wished he had chain lightning, Uh, Winthrop wished he had chain lightning that he might send damnation among the secessionists. So throughout his diary, he's talking about coming south, and ending slavery and vanquishing the slaveholder. And so you have this staunch Southerner, this great uh, 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 warrior, almost in biblical proportions, uh, uh, reading by campfire the diary of his enemy who had been killed that morning. So I, that is one of those points in the war that brings it to to uh, the reality and this this unexpected uh, twist in the story and, and a very deep insight that you never would think that you would find. I mean, D.H. Hill is, is well known for his, his uh, uncompromising uh, pro-Southern views and his, his hatred and mockery of Yankees. And you have to wonder if somehow someone could have given him a diary like that 10 years earlier to say, you know, those people are really in earnest up there. Uh, your contempt for them is misplaced. They're willing to sacrifice a great deal for their ideals, just as you are. Uh, they might have persuaded a few people not to go to war in the first place, but, of course, that didn't happen. Let me ask you about the battlefield today. Uh, you mentioned you've, you've walked the field. I'm always curious to know what things look like today. Is there anything to see? Unfortunately, uh, Jerry, this is unique in, in some ways. Uh, In the 1930s, there was a reservoir uh, uh, constructed there, and much of the battlefield was flooded. And so when you come there today, you see a reservoir with recreational facilities, fishing and boating and such around it. There's uh, one entrenchment that survives. The graveyard from the um, uh, church is still there. The 1905 monument that was put up to commemorate the battle is there. But there's very, very few um, uh, uh, remnants of of the battle. Uh, Fort Monroe is very different. Fort Monroe stands pretty much as it was. Uh, Camp Butler has vanished. Uh, But there certainly are uh, uh, features still here that remind us of the Battle of Big Bethel. Well, listeners, if you're in the area, there's uh, hard to imagine any part of the United States with more history per square inch than the lower Virginia Peninsula from Williamsburg to Yorktown to Hampton uh, and across to Norfolk. There's history everywhere, uh, Civil War, Revolutionary, uh, and elsewhere, and and certainly worth uh, anyone's time to visit that part of the country. Uh, And worth it to to read this book, Battle of Big Bethel, Crucial Clash in Early Civil War Virginia. Uh, It's really a fascinating look at a battle that most of us have never 
stop to learn anything about, well, now is your chance. Uh, and, and Mike, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing that with us. Always good to talk about the Civil War, Jerry. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.